0: Matthew 26, as we continue looking at uh, our study here in Matthew, Matthew, the 26th chapter. This morning we'll be looking at the betrayal of Jesus. We never know what a day will bring forth. I think Many of us remember the day that two jets purposely crashed into the buildings in New York City. We hear about all kinds of tragedies in the news, fatal accidents, beheadings in the Middle East. A young boy recently died playing hockey. And many more terrible events taking place in our world. Now we can learn about the stark reality of life and death. With the certainty of death for all men, we must admit the uncertainty of its timing. Wickedness in the human heart, even our own, can stoop deeper and darker than any of us could imagine. And to fix all of our hopes and our dreams and desires in this world alone will leave us despondent and hopeless when life's uncertainties befall us. And they will befall us at one time or another. Death comes sooner or later. In the end, whether terrorist bombings or automobile accidents or heart attacks or cancer or old age, all of us will face death. And there is one absolute, one certainty, and that is through Christ alone we can be prepared for life and death. And such preparation for life and death did not take place by a stroke of luck or a proper alignment of the stars or a series of fortunate circumstances. It happened because God was pleased to send His own Son as the solitary way of life and the eternal relationship to God. Every detail in His redemptive mission of Christ bears importance because every detail proved necessary in the divine plan. Salvation doesn't just happen. It takes place only due to the provision of God through Christ. In every detail, Christ Passion, we discover the truth about God, about man, about sin, about Christ, about eternity. And the details matter enough to God that He inspired the biblical writers to both predict and record them so that we can understand that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of our salvation. What do we learn from the story of Christ's betrayal? Well, certainly one of the most reprehensible scenes in the Gospels that might help us to understand God, help us to understand ourselves and eternity through Christ. Nothing in human history probably more vividly portrays the depravity, the blackness, the vileness, and the deceit of the human heart than the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ into the hands of of the enemies by Judas Iscariot. Nothing more woefully displays the evil of the hypocrite's heart than this vile deed of Judas. Nothing more fearfully exemplifies the hardness of heart that is produced by a profession of faith in Christ without the possession of the grace of God and the knowledge of Christ. Now, if we were we are wise, we'll read the passage that we have before us here with fear and trembling, lest we should be found to be a Judas. What a sad picture the Holy Spirit has painted with these words. And here we see the beginning of our Lord's sorrows. The cup of his woe is beginning to be filled. One of the disciples is betraying him. Now all of his disciples will forsake him. He's going to be arrested like a common thief by his enemies. And behold, these things, the beginning of his sorrows, and know that there never was or ever will be any sorrow like his sorrow. And may we never forget that he went to the cross willingly for us. The Son of God was delivered for our offenses. And in the verses before us, we will were given very clear instructions concerning both our Redeemer and ourselves. And may God, the Holy Spirit, take these things uh, of Christ and show them to us. Notice first of all with me the kiss of treachery. The kiss of treachery. As we look at our passage here, beginning in verse forty-seven. It says, and while he yet spake, lo Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave him a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Now, who is not familiar with the kiss of hypocrisy? That is, the Judas kiss. I think most everyone is familiar with this event but few I fear really think about its implications. The most abominable and dangerous men in the world are those who betray Christ with a kiss of friendship and Judas betrayed the Lord of Glory with a kiss. Through treachery was though treachery was in his heart familiarity kindness peace and love was what he wished to convey. Now in the eastern countries, a kiss is a common form of greeting. It suggests respect and re- friendship and affection, a wish that one kissed may enjoy every blessing. And uh, in that culture uh, they would be the, that kiss that would be we give it. Now, I don't suggest that to be a practice in our culture. But Judas' kiss was the kiss of a betrayer, kiss of treachery and hypocrisy. When he said, Hail, Master, he was saying, Joy and happiness to you, Master. And the hypocrite with brazen and hardness of heart pretended to worship and to honor and to love and serve Christ, even the act of betraying him. May God give us the, uh, uh, save us from the treacherous kisses of self-righteousness and false religion and idolatry and hypocrisy. Notice in verse 50, he said, And Jesus said unto him, Friend, friend, wherefore art thou come? Jesus said friend. Now, when he said friend, it means comrade or companion. Rather than the more intimate concept of friend that Jesus used in John chapter 15 and verse 14, where the word there implies devoted friends or beloved ones. Jesus is simply calling Judas a comrade, a companion. And it serves as a reminder that Judas spent three years by Christ's side, and yet he failed to be devoted to Him. And what's so fascinating, I think, to me, is that Jesus did not give Judas you know, a good talking to. He didn't, just, he didn't scold him. Surely he could have called Judas a few choice names and reproved him. That's kind of what we would have done, maybe. But not the Lord. He could have said, you deceiver. You traitor. You snake. Uh, He did call some people that, didn't he? Back in chapter 23. And he, he could have called the same words that he used for the Pharisees and the scribes, He could have used those same ones for Judas. But the attitude here of Christ demonstrates his persistent purpose to carry out the redemptive plan of God, even when it meant to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. So he basically says, man, get on with it. This is kind of restraint in the face of God's providence that gives us a model to practice. The same when we're tempted to reply to those who treat us with cruelty. When people mistreat you, how do you respond? Here's a lesson from Christ. The kiss of treachery also is shown in all who pretend to serve and honor the Lord Jesus Christ while betraying Him with false doctrine. We've talked about the importance of sound doctrine in our adult Sunday school class. And there are many people today who honor Christ with their lips, but they betray him with false doctrine. They deny him. And the work of God the Father in the accomplishment of our salvation by his eternal. Decree the work of God the Son in the accomplishments of righteousness and redemption at Calvary, and the works of God with the whole of the Holy Spirit imparting righteousness to us, making us partakers of the divine nature in generation, regeneration, and sanctifying, uh, sanctifying chosen, redeemed sinners by His grace in the gifts of life and faith in Christ. Our Savior's warning needs to be. Uh, Sounded out often and heard distinctly when he said back in Matthew 7 and verse 17, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. These wolves would not be so dangerous if they did not come in sheep's clothing. Someone has written, This sign of Judas was typical of the way in which Jesus is generally betrayed. When men intend to undermine the scriptures, how do they begin their books? Why, it's always with a declaration that they wish to promote the truth of Christ. And then they go ahead and teach false doctrine. So we have the kiss of treachery. Secondly, we have the An accessible Savior. An accessible Savior. The Lord Jesus is such a friend of sinners that He is readily accessible to them. And I recognize that we're never told that any of the other apostles kissed the Savior, but that doesn't mean that they did not. In fact, it would have been a very strange thing if they had failed to do that. As I said, this was then as it is now a common form of greeting in eastern countries. And there are some religious groups that even practice this as well, saying, well, we're just doing what the Bible says. And our Lord rebuked Simon the Pharisee because he did not greet him in this manner in Luke chapter 7. But when Judas made his deal of treachery, he told them to arrest the one that he kissed his object was to betray the master in a way that would appear least suspicious and so he said whomsoever i shall kiss the same as he apparently this was the common way in which the lord was greeted by his disciples from after a time of absence it was a custom maintained by the disciples even long afterward paul frequently admonished believers in his day Greet one another with a holy kiss. Peter urges us to greet one another with a kiss of charity. And there's a word of instruction, I believe, and even comfort and encouragement in this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is gracious here. He condescends to be accessible to and approached by sinners such as we are in the most intimate manner. In fact, we are commanded to kiss the Son. What a blessed commandment of grace that is. When the Son of God was to sinners in His humiliation, He is in His exaltation. He's just as ready to save, just as accessible today as He was when He walked upon the earth. Sinners may freely come to the Son of God without fear of being rejected or cast off by Him. Sinners, Jesus will receive. Sound the word of grace to all, the hymn says. But then thirdly, we also notice spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. And let all who seek to serve the cause of Christ in this world learn from these verses. As we begin here at verse 51 Verse 53, that the cause of Christ and his kingdom cannot be established, maintained or defended or even held by carnal means. Notice verse 51. It says, And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into this place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? In verse 51 we see Peter acting very rashly. Surprise, surprise. He drew out his sword and he began to take on the band of soldiers single-handedly. And we can admire his courage, but we must not fail to see the folly in this. Our Lord rebuked him for it. He didn't commend him. Someone has wisely observed a wonderful work of God. It was surely and hereupon he was not hewn in a hundred pieces by the barbarous soldiers. But I think we need to understand a couple of things here. Number one is no condemnation of the sword. There is no condemnation of the sword. God does not condemn the lawful use of the sword or of deadly arms and force. Now that's not a popular thing to be preaching these days. It's not politically correct, is it? There are many that take this verse, they say, this believers aren't to go to war. Believers shouldn't go, uh, go to war against, uh, to defend their nation or against man arming himself to defend his family or property against criminal intruders or against the exercise of capital punishment by the state. Now, I'm not going to debate these issues this morning. I'm not going to get into details about that. But I just will state that the Word of God does, without question, allow the use of the sword. He, uses the, uh, he allows the use of deadly force in s- some circumstances. I will say this, I as a chaplain for law enforcement, I've ridden with officers, and not in this county, but we had an officer that I rode with, and he questioned me one night as we were riding around the county. He said, uh, what about me taking my gun and shooting somebody? Is that, what's the Bible say about that? I'm beginning to think, oh oh, this guy might have a little, might be a little gun shy here. But I took him to Romans chapter 13, and told him he does not bear the sword in vain. That Glock 40 and his holster was his sword, and he does not bear it in vain. God has ordained that he be the peacekeeper, the the guardian of uh, the good and the protector against evil. Now, there's many people in that community that didn't agree with me on that. The Amish and the Mennonites and so forth, they they wouldn't have agreed with that kind of preaching. I think that young man is uh, now out of the law enforcement, probably a good thing that he is if he's questioning whether he should use it if he needs to. That's really not the subject here, is it? But there's no condemnation of it. But there is no Christianity by the sword either. Our Lord here is teaching that is that His cause, His kingdom, His gospel can be never established, maintained, defended, or even helped by carnal weapons. He does say in... Uh, Through Paul, in 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And while he specifically speaks of the sword, the sword is but a symbol for all carnal things. True Christianity cannot be established by carnal means. I can't force someone to get saved. I can't say, get saved or else. Now there are some religions that are saying, you know, believe our religion or else, and the or else is coming. We've seen it: the beheadings, the killing of Christians in some nations because they 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 claim their their claim of Christianity and their denial of that religion. True Christianity cannot be established by carnal means, and we must not attempt it. We must not try to to arm-wrestle people into being saved. Genuine Christianity is established by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Every other means by which men attempt to advance the cause of Christ in this world, whether it be civil law, political power, religious uh, power, entertainment, religious philosophy, human reason, the doctrines of man, the eloquent speech, and so forth, and so forth, that are all but wood, hay, and stubble that can be burned. Peter fell into that trap that many religions fall in today, and as they try to force people into belief. And if someone doesn't believe the way they do, they will even resort to violence and terror. So we are involved in spiritual warfare, and the Lord does not condemn the sword, nor does He allow us to use the sword to make followers of Christ. And so we come then to a voluntary sacrifice. All that our Lord Jesus Christ endured as our substitute, He freely endured and voluntarily. One great feature in the redemption of souls is the freeness with which our Savior performed the work. In fact, a great measure, in great measure it was the voluntariness of our Savior's sacrifice that gave it merit and efficacy. In John Chapter 10, it says, our Savior says there, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my Father. The Lord Jesus was not taken captive against His will, because, or because He could not escape would have been a very easy thing for him to do. But he had to come to this place to fulfill the will of God, to fulfill the types and the prophecies of the Old Testament, to fulfill all righteousness for the salvation of his people. His heart was set upon accomplishing this great work. He was a voluntary scapegoat, a willing victim. He was a willing sacrifice for you and me. In verse 53, he says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? And thus it must be. In the, that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and ye laid no hold on me. But all this All this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him and fled. I want you to notice two particular phrases there in that portion of our text. In verse 54, thus it must be. And then in verse 56, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. The Lord said, thus it must be. Why? Why must it be? It must be because it was ordained by God the Father. It was agreed upon in the covenant of grace. It was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. Every detail of our Lord's suffering and death, from His vile betrayal to the piercing of His holy side, was foretold in the Old Testament. It must be because it was typified in the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the law. There was no other way for God and His holy justice for, to forgive and to pardon His people. Probably one of the most difficult issues, I think, for us to grasp in God's word involves divine decrees and human decisions. Or are God's sovereign purposes and man's exercise of the will? So often, for varied reasons, people want to fall on one side or the other of these realities, and either God is sovereign and man is therefore robotic and, and man's uh, will trumps even God's purposes, or God can only do what man will allow him to do in such case? Well, both of those caricatures present problems that do not act, accurately reflect the teaching of Scripture. And that's why this passage is so important, along with many others, I'm sure, but in helping us to understand Something of these truths. What we see taking place very clearly is the unfolding of God's will. God's purposes, God's plans, what He ordained before the foundation of the world takes place. And Jesus said twice, How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? And then He said, But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus Christ considered the events here in Gethsemane to be the unfolding of the divine will, according or recorded centuries ago in the Holy Scriptures. But we also see men involved here exercising their desire, following their will in defiance of Christ. And the religious leaders pursue Christ to arrest him. Ju- Judas betrays Christ. The soldiers arrest Jesus and the disciples flee. They take, make a choice. They flee. They leave him alone. Clearly the demonstration's men doing what they desired or willed to do. So how do we make sense of this? Well, not long after this time, the disciples fully understood this mysterious working of divine sovereignty and the fulfillment of God's eternal plan with precision while men exercise their wills in defiance of God. This reality shows up in their praying. And the example we have is in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 30 you want to follow along, listen to their prayer. It says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own company, and they reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod... And Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before it to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants with all boldness that they speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child, Jesus. It's an interesting passage. Past passage, knowing what happened back here in Matthew, the disciples all forsook Christ and fled. It's a different story here. Notice that they first confess that God is sovereign, He's the sovereign Lord. The word Lord there in that uh, uh, passage in Acts chapter 4 is the word despotus, which we get our word despot. It means he was absolute sovereign ruler. And they confess the Lord is not only a absolute sovereign ruler, but he's also creator. And he's decreed in the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, precisely what he pre- purposed to do. And that does not mean that Men opposed him, and yet a part of the divine plan of redemption could be inexcusable for their sins. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews all gathered together against Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. They did it intentionally. They did it willfully and with a malice in mind, and they will be judged for those actions. But consider what the the disciples came to understand. That all they had done, even with malicious intent, they did whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before it was done. Divine decree and human decision operating simultaneously with God, without God being blamed for man's action and man without excuse that God made me do it. God's purpose occurred. And sinful men did what they willed to do. And Peter made a very similar statement at his sermon at Pentecost. He said, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. God's purpose unfolded while men did what they desired to do before Christ. That brings us to depraved sinners still. Because here in verse 56, it it says uh, to us uh, in the very last sentence there, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. We see the conduct of our Lord's disciples there and a a clear picture of what the Word of God constantly holds before us in regard to saved sinners. Though loved and chosen of God, though redeemed and justified by the blood of Christ, though born of the Spirit, sanctified and given a new righteous nature by Him, God's saints in this world, including you and me, if you know the Lord this morning, we're still sinners. There's no perfect people in this room here, okay? We're still sinners, even if we're saved. None of us really knows what evils are we're capable of committing. It says, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. How little we know of the weakness and sin of our own hearts. All these disciples had, just a few hours earlier, protested the Lord's prophecy and said, Oh, we'll never forsake you, Lord. There's no reason for their fear. The Lord Jesus had already demanded these soldiers that they... Let the, his disciples go. They had witnessed his sovereign power over these soldiers, and yet, when left to their own strength, every one of them forsook their master. And you might think this morning, well, I would never forsake the Lord. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Careful. Not a person in here is not capable of that. In a time of testing, they forgot everything. They forgot God's goodness, God's grace, God's power. They forgot their past experiences, their fervent resolutions. They forgot their master's love. They forgot everything. Every detail in the betrayal, Christ's arrest and his death on the cross came at the hands of sinful men, but only because of the eternal purpose of God to redeem a people for himself. What are we to think as we stand back and we look at this passage? We're we're to realize that men can stoop to the depths of depravity in pursuit of their own desires. And that includes every one of us here this morning. But in spite of our sinfulness... God purposed to send His Son to suffer at the hands of sinners and then bear the divine judgment against sinners at the cross. Have you this morning embraced a simple, in simple faith with a heart humbled before Him, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior? You see, there is one great certainty. God has provided forgiveness and new life through His Son that alone prepares us for life and for death this here recorded is recorded to remind us again that there is no evil we cannot be capable of committing or will not commit if we're left to ourselves and that salvation is by grace alone only our the righteousness our only righteousness is Jesus Christ our redeemer Our only hope of preservation is that God who saved us by His grace will keep us by His grace. I think we need to learn from this passage lessons of humiliation and resolve by God's grace to cultivate a spirit of lowliness and self-distrust. Let's settle in our minds, in our hearts, that there is nothing too bad for the very best of us to do unless he is held up by the grace of God, and let it be one of our daily prayers, Lord, hold me up, and I shall be safe, as the psalmist said in Psalm 119 and verse 17. And after these things, after suffering the wrath of men, our Savior yet had to endure the wrath of God to save us, and that too he voluntarily endured, "...endured to be our substitute, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God, our Christ, hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ." that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's bow our heads in prayer.